0: We can go ahead and open up to Exodus chapter 30. That's where our series takes us tonight, Exodus chapter 30. Craig, I appreciate you leading that song before the lesson. That's, uh, you know, in sports you may have a walk-up song or a tunnel song you like to, to listen to. In preaching, sometimes certain hymns just hit a little different right before you preach, right? And so I appreciate you leading that one. That one is one that definitely makes you excited to get up here and talk about God's Word. Today's 9-11-2022, uh, right? And maybe if you're like me, I'm sure most of you, every September 11th, you're thinking of the same thing, right? And, and that's what we try to do, right? We promise those that live through 9-11-2001 that we would what? That we would never forget. And so it's hard now, every 9-11, to, to, work, to go through the day and not be thinking about that. When you get on social media, when you turn on the television, it's, it's specials on that, and it's commemorative post or comments about it and that's an incredible thing right because that's what our nation is thinking about today and a lot of uh, most days when this date comes around right Uh, back in 2014 I got the opportunity to do some mission work in upstate New York and to work and live in Albany for a couple weeks and it was great the work went really well and one of the days that we got done early we drove down to the New York State Museum and this is not in New York City this is in Albany itself and uh, it was great, it's an, an amazing museum. Uh, I love museums, if you're one to like those, if you're ever in New York, it's worth driving out of the city and going up there, it's really, really cool. It, it has some really neat pieces, it has uh, Sesame Street's original street, so that, that was great, it has some uh, big moose, not meese, some big plural moose uh, things. So it's, a, it's an incredible museum. But uh, of course, they had a 9-11 memorial, and it was amazing. There are a few pieces, and I wanted to show the pictures, and I was trying to find them before tonight started. Uh, there were a few pieces that really just made you stop. You know, a lot of times you're going through a museum, you're walking, you're looking, you're, this is great. You take a few pictures, and there's sometimes you walk through a museum and it's heavy, right? And you stop and you read the plaque, and it's hard to move to the next one because you don't want to cheap, you don't want to kind of move on too quick, right? You want to savor that moment and you, you want to give due, dil, due diligence to what you're observing at this time. So the 9-11 memorial in the New York State Museum was one of those that you want to end on. You don't want to start there, then go to Sesame Street, right? You end on this one. They have a lot of amazing pieces from that day and the, and the weeks leading after that. I, I, I'll never forget a, a crunched, Police car door that was um, they had, it had fallen off, but it was crunched. You know, maybe a door is about this high from bottom to top, maybe something like that, right? And it was down to about two feet. Something had fallen on it and crunched it, just like a accordion, just crunched it down. Uh, I'll never forget the. They have a they have a full size fire truck that was there that day, parked in the museum. And you may have seen uh, photos of this fire truck. It's it's kind of famous. It was one that was burnt from the front end up. Half of the truck is pristine, it's red, it's cleaned off, it's great, and the other half is completely burned out. And it was from where part of the building fell on it and collapsed it, but somehow left the other half almost unscathed completely. But there'll be nothing, nothing, and that was amazing, but nothing really stood up to there was this wall they have. And if you remember, if you were alive during that time, you remember all the specials and watching the news after 9-11. You know, In and around, kind of ground zero, people would go and post pictures. You know, Polaroid, they would actually not post, you know, with thumbtacks. Post pictures and letters and notes looking for loved ones or offering prayers or encouragements. And there would be walls, you know, almost, you know, dozens of feet long and about six feet high. Just all these letters and notes and photos. Some extremely encouraging, some extremely heartbreaking. People looking for those that had not been found yet, right? and they had one of these, one of those walls. Uh, who knows what happened to all those photos and notes, but there's a section at the New York State Museum, it's about, I think it's about 15 foot long, about six foot high, and I think it was uh, a chain-linked chain fence that was just happened to be at ground zero, and from that evening, people started attaching photos and notes and, and things like I've been describing. And so it's behind a glass case and you just walk and you want to read every single letter. You want to look at every single photo. And it's an amazing thing to, to witness. I was nine when 9-11 happened. I remember it. I remember it's one of those what psychologists would call a flashbulb moment. Everybody knows where you were when, that, when you first heard of what happened, right? I was nine, so I was in school. I thought, they let out early. I got home and I thought it was a movie. I didn't understand what was going on. So I understood, I, you know, I was told this is what happened, and I, and I, I remember that how the nation was, right, watching news and going to school the next few days. But I didn't understand the weight. And maybe I didn't really fully understand the weight completely, maybe I'll never will, right, but maybe I didn't fully understand it until I was that, I think I was 21 years old, standing in the New York State Museum, reading those letters, that's when history felt real. And that's what I love about museums. That's when history becomes real. You're put in front of an object or some type of belonging or some artifact, something, right? And you go, I've read about this, I've seen this, and you've, you've understand. You, you may, maybe it's a war memorial and say, how, you know, what was going through those, those men's minds when this was going on? But then to stand on that battleground or to be there and to see what they saw, right? That puts you in a whole different mindset. And that 9-11 memorial was the same thing. I'd felt some of that weight of what 9-11 was and what it means. But standing in that memorial, said, okay, this is something different, right? It's imperative that we as Christians go to God's Word. And as we go through the Old Testament, we see not a museum. I'm not trying to say the Old Testament museum. We see it for its value that it can teach us today. And that's why I love this this series that we're engaging right now, right? We're doing this series called Rooms to Know. And, and that's, an, that's an amazing thing to do because the, old, the, the tabernacle isn't something that should be staying back in the book of Exodus. It would be so easy, the tabernacle, now that it's out of date, now that it's not in use anymore, it's in a relic of things that used to be, right, that we just forget about it. And we just let it be something in the Old Testament that we go, wow, look at the things they used to do and look at the, the way they have to use, you know, do those things or whatever it may be, right? It's an easy way to see the tabernacle as an object in a textbook. But I love that we've, we've, we've tried to sit one piece at a time as, we go, as, we, as we've gone through this series and try to observe it almost like we're at a museum saying, okay, what does this piece feel like? What does this, this furnishing look like? What was its function, right? And so we've been slowly working our way through the tabernacle in this series. So far, you know, we, we entered into the court and we walked up and we had uh, Ben kicked us off at the, the altar of burnt offering, right? He did an incredible job of trying to get us to to see what it smelt like, what it sounded like. This isn't the the shiny plastic piece in in a toy. This is an altar of burnt offerings. Offerings of animals that have been just slaughtered moments before. And we sat there and we tried to, to feel what that felt like, right? And we moved on we walked past that. And then Kyle got into our series and he got it and looked into the bronze laver. Not laver, that's not a word. I'm thinking lavender. Oh, it is laver. I always wanna say lavender and it throws me off. The bronze laver. And this is an amazing piece because you walk through this pretty incredible altar burnt offering, right? This opposing large structure. And you would get on the other side of that. You could have this nice cool water basin. And we were able to wash our hands Maybe wash the smell, the feel of the altar off of ourselves. We're able to kind of sit and see the symbolic meaning of all of this, right? And then Craig, a couple weeks ago, pulled back the curtain a little bit, and we walked into, not the most holy, but we walked into the holy place, right? And maybe if you're like me, in a, in a dark room, I think most humans, your eyes go to the source of light first, right? And so Craig did a great job, an incredible job, just like Ben and Kyle, in opening up, okay, the first, one of the first furnishings, if you were to walk into the temple Maybe the first thing you see would be that golden lampstand, right? And so we sat there and we looked at it and we observed what, how it was built and what it meant and what it could mean to us today. And that's been the best part of this series, right? It's one thing to see and to notice, okay, this is what it looked like, this is what it did, that's amazing, right? But this is so much more than a museum because these are things that reach us, Christians, thousands of years in the future with meaning and purpose and value in our lives today. We walked past the the altar of burnt offering, and we said, this was where Jesus is compared. John chapter 1, the Lamb of God, this is his sacrifice right here, right? And then we got to the water basin, we got to John chapter 4, we said, I am the water of life, okay? So this is where baptism cleanses us of that sin that was made possible because of the altar of burnt offering, right? It's not like they had a, you know an architecture come in there and someone that was really good at room design and say, mm, altar of an offering here, then maybe it makes sense to go to the laver right there, and then we'll do the front door. No, God said, I'm gonna teach my people for 1,000 years to come by the simple placement of the furnishings in my tabernacle. That's the wisdom of God on display. And it's so much more than just a pattern. It's a teaching tool that shows us salvation by the simple placings of furnishings in his house. So we got John chapter 1, the Lamb of God, John chapter 4, the water of life. We went to John chapter 9 and looked at how he, when Christ said, I am the light of this world, right, at the golden lampstand. And now that takes us to our second furnishing in the holy place. We're still inside the tabern- tabernacle, so you know we're not going to dim the lights, but imagine we're in a dimmed lit room, right, the only source of the light, because it's covered completely, Maybe it's is maybe just the, the, just the, the lampstand itself, right? And that's all the light we've got. You can see that. Maybe you can smell some of the showbread that we're going to get to in weeks to come, right? But you're also going to be smelling something else. Because tonight we're going to look at the altar of incense. We don't know what that smells like because we don't know what the incense they used. It was kept secret. But that might be one of the second things you noticed as you walk back and walk into the temple you've got your lampstand <clears throat> and you see this very large curtain in front of you very thick you don't know what's on the other you know it's on the other side of it but you can't see it and right in front of it is the altar of incense so tonight i've got three simple points maybe we may even get done a little early we're going to get to know the altar what is it what does it look like where is it placed right we're going, to get, we're going to see, okay, what about the altar and what can we learn about Jesus from the altar? And then my last point, spoiler, what can we learn about prayer from the altar, okay? So let's read Exodus chapter 30. Let's go through verses 1 through 10 and let's learn about what the altar of incense looks like, where it's at, its shape, and size. Let's start in verses 1 and 2. Moreover, you shall make an altar as a place of burning incense, uh, for burning incense. You shall make it of acacia wood. Its length shall be a cubit, and its width a cubit, and it shall be square, and its height shall be two cubits. Its horns shall be of one piece with it. So this is a pretty simple structure, right? It does not take an amazing imagination to kind of see what type of structure we're dealing with tonight, right? It's about 18 inches a square, right? Um... One of the podiums that we use on the ministers of the round Table nights, that's, it's about that size. It's about a foot and a half, a square, kind of round it off there, right? And then it's about three feet tall. I'm six feet tall. I got a little heel on tonight, you know what I'm saying? But I'm about six feet tall. And so you imagine about half my height and about a foot and a half wide, you've got this structure, maybe about to right here. And we start to see what it looks like, right? But that's not what maybe captures our attention. A a normal box like that, you'll go, that's amazing. It's got the four horns on each side. But then we get into a little bit more detail. Verse 3 and 4. You shall overlay it with pure gold, its top, its sides, and all around its horns, and you shall make a gold molding all around for it. You shall make two gold rings for it under its molding you shall make them on its two sidewalls on opposing sides and they shall be holders for poles for which for with which to carry it so now we have okay obviously like everything else in the temple in the tabernacle here it's overlaid with gold maybe that's just, maybe that's the first thing you notice about it right Maybe that's one of the first things when you come into the tabernacle, you've seen the, the golden lampstand. But then you see this kind of mysterious looking box in the back, the structure in the back, the small altar. And it's overlaid with glittering gold, right? There's four horns on its side. It's an amazing thing. And it's carried just like other furnishings. It has rings on each side so that poles can be inserted. And that's, that's imperative. We've gotta, we've, that's got to be there. Because this, this altar isn't meant to just sit there for the rest of the time. This is very much in the middle of the wandering time in the, in, the, in the people of Israel's life, right? And so they're up and moving every so often for 40 years. So this thing was on the move constantly. I'm sure maybe they're a little jealous that they don't have the wheels like our podiums have. But God says, no, we're going to put rings on each side. And you're going to insert poles and you'll have men come on each side. We're going to lift it up. We're going to carry it from you know location A to wherever we're staying the night at next night, right? let's keep reading you should make the poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold you shall put this altar in front of the veil that is near the ark of the testimony in front of the mercy seat that is over the ark of the testimony where I will meet you. And so like I said before, this is, when you walk into the temple, it's the the Adam that's furthest away from you because it's right at the the veil of the, the most holy area, right, where that Ark of the Covenant is. Now, at certain times of the year, this altar of incense seems to be picked up and carried into the most holy place. Leviticus chapter 12, verses 13 through 16, talks about how on the Day of Atonement, you would sprinkle blood on top of the, uh, of the altar and then bring it in there and let the incense kind of waft over, over the Ark of the Covenant. And that's why in Hebrews chapter 10, it says, there, there's, some people look at the bouncer and see, there's a, there's a contradiction. Here in Exodus chapter 30, it's supposed to be on, you know, on the holy place, not the most holy. Hebrews chapter 10, where is the altar since located? It's in the most holy well, I think because its job is completed at that point, right? Because Christ tore that, tore that veil in two, and it's that time. It's that day, the day of atonement has come, so that altar of incense can sit there for the rest of time. We're going to get to what that means in a second. But it's on a normal day, right? Maybe Sunday, 9-11 back then. It's sitting right out front in the most holy area. And that's where, what it looks like and where it's placed. Now let's look. That's the construction of the altar. Now let's look at its function. 7 and 8, Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it. He shall burn it every morning when he trims the lamps. And when Aaron trims, and when, and, excuse me, when, verse 8, when Aaron trims the lamps at twilight, he shall also burn incense. Thou shalt be a perpetual incense before the Lord throughout your generations. And so now we have the kind of, the, we, we know what it looks like. We see the construction. Now let's look at the function uh, of the altar of the incense. We have that Jesus, uh, Jesus, Aaron is coming in every morning. And as he's trimming the lamps, he's, he has two jobs, right? He's trimming the lamps, and then he goes from the lamps, and then to the altar of incense, and he's putting down incense. He's putting down a, a mixture of fine powdered uh, different ingredients we're going to be looking at later on in our lesson tonight. And he's laying that down. Again, in Leviticus chapter 13, we also have this knowledge that where, where is he getting the fire from, Right. The altar of incense is something that's burning. It's, it's consuming that incense, and that's why the smoke is rising from it. It's, he's not just laying a, a powdery substance on the top and walking away, right? He's stoking the fire, making that burn up and letting the fumes rise up. Where he's getting that fire from, Leviticus tells us that he had to go into the, the altar of burnt offering and get coals and get the fire from the altar of burnt offering, that sacred fire, and then bring, capture that fire with the coals and bring it into in a shallow basin and then deposit it into the altar of incense. An outward, you have an outside altar, and you have an inside altar. And the inside altar, this, the one we're looking at tonight, is being fed and stoked by the altar the of uh, burnt offering from outside. So that's the function. And like I said, once a year there's a special function where the blood is sprinkled on the horns, it's carried into the Most Holies, and the, the fumes kind of, kind of waft over uh, the altar, uh, the, the Ark of the Covenant. So that's what it looks like right that's the idea of the altar of incense um let's we're going to finish out this section verses 9 and 10 and we're going to kind of capture what it looks like where it's at its size function everything about it you shall not offer any strange incense on this altar or born or burnt offering or meal offering and you shall not pour out a drink offering on it aaron shall make atonement for on its horns once a year and he shall make atonement on it with the blood of the sin offering of atonement once a year throughout your generations It is most holy to the Lord. So now that we know a little bit about it, what can we take away from this? Because if we stop right here, we run the risk of treating the altar of instance like an object in the textbook, right? If you're like me, when I was in school, if I had to learn a structure, textbook style, I'm memorizing the facts, I'm saying, okay, that seems really neat. I hope I do good on the test, and I'm flipping the page, right? And that's the... we could, and that's what we could do here. We can see the altar of incense is just another aspect of the Old Testament that's been kind of washed away, right? The aspect that it was about three feet tall, it's about a foot and a half in diameter when it comes to the, the square edge of it. It's going to be picked up in, in, in poles, it's overlaid with beautiful gold, and there's a fire-consuming incense kind of constantly being kind of fumed, uh, fumed up in the middle, Right? Aaron's going in in the morning and stoking the fires and putting incense. And then at night when he comes to trim the, light, the lamps once again, he's doing it again so that there's a perpetual incense always burning, the, f- the fumes always rising, aroma always going outward, right? And that's the facts. So maybe if we stop right here, maybe we would do okay on a Bible bowl test coming up on it. But the altar of incense, can, we can learn so much more from it if we'll just stop. It consider its construction and its function and what we can learn about it in two ways. First off, what can we learn about Jesus from the altar of incense? I think we can take two things away from it. First, from its construction. The altar of incense is basically two aspects, right? It's, it has twofold form. It has acacia wood, and it's overlaid with gold. It's interesting that he chooses acacia wood here. What's interesting about it is it's the only wood used in all of the tabernacle. It's the only wood that God allowed and ordained to say, okay, when you build the Ark of the Covenant, the most holy structure God has ever laid out, right? You build it of acacia wood. Everything that was holy in God's eyes that he was giving and saying, build it out of acacia wood. And so what's so special about acacia wood? Why why is this the wood that God is always turning to and using for his holy furnishings in this text? Well, I think there's a practical sense and there's a a spiritual sense to this, right? The practical sense is this is a tree that grows pretty much everywhere in the wilderness that the Israelites are are going in. And And I wonder, God, in his ultimate wisdom, knowing, okay, the... Ultimately, my people are going to fail. They're going to be wandering the wilderness for a long time. So let me go ahead and set them up. That the things that they're building out of are from the furnishings that they have constant access to. And so he chooses acacia wood, maybe for the practical side of it, but it's also a really good—it's a really good building substance too. It's a very dense wood. It's heavy in grain. It's a beautiful wood. Uh, maybe Hal Hogan can appreciate this part of my lesson, right? But it's really dense and in the, the great. That is, it's almost impervious to any rot or disease. You've got a tabernacle that's supposed to last hundreds and hundreds of years. You don't want to go get Home Depot two- by-fours for this, right? So God says, "I'm going to give you the exact wood to use." And it's just wood that's practical, because you can find it everywhere you go, but you can trust on it, because it's not going to rot, it's not going to decay, it's not going to hold moisture. Like most other substances in that area. And you have this overlaying with gold, right? This very practical wood overlaid with gold. What do we learn about Jesus from this? I think we were, I'm reminded of the two fold form of our Savior when He walked on this earth. That He was 100% man, 100% God. That just as the altar of incense was built in a very, very real human substance of wood. I think that can stand for the human substance of our Savior as He walked for the 30-odd years that He walked among us. And when I look at the gold overlaying of the altar of incense, I see the glory of God, right? So we often see the, the term and the use of gold in the book of Revelation and all through the prophets are talking about the streets of gold and what heaven is going to look like and the glory of God, right? The altar of incense was built out of a sturdy substance, and overlaid with a, a, a glorious medal, right? Now think about my Savior, who is a is a man just like me. He got hungry. He was tired. At times, he felt overwhelmed. But he is also God in every sense. In every sense that I'll never be. In every sense that I try to understand. He never sinned. He forgave sins. He healed sicknesses. He saw the hearts and intents of others and spoke with authority and wisdom like no other. And both of these parts are just as important. The altar of incense, both parts are just as important in the eyes of God as he's telling the builders here. And I feel like when we see our Savior in the two-fold form that he has, both the fleshly worldly side, uh, world aspect of him, and then also the spiritual aspect that he is God in, in all form. And I feel like it's, it would be blasphemous to take either part of that away from him. It'd be blasphemous to take away the, the human side of him, right? To say that he wasn't 100% man and that he was just a figure of a man. He looked like a man, but he was a God that just walked, walked among us and just happened to look like you and me. And if we do that, I feel like we cheapen Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, if I can find find it in my notes here. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 through 16. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I'm so grateful that my Savior was just like me for the years that he walked among this earth. Because he had to put up with stuff that I have to put up with. And he went through things that I can't even imagine that a normal man would have to go through, right? That he has felt pains that i felt. He understands the physical fatigue of waking up and continuing on, right? And I will be eternally grateful that the high priest that I bow my knee to can sympathize with my weaknesses because he's walked the path. Not watched the path, he's walked the path. I'm so grateful that our God, our Savior, came and walked and looked and acted and was, in all form, just like you and me. But that doesn't take away that he was also 100 percent God, right? He was overlaid with that glorious spiritual aspect. And I feel like it would be blasphemous if we took that away from him, and it cheapens his glory. John would write in John chapter one, verse 14, "And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and, he saw, and we saw His glory. Glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace. In truth. John, Jesus would add on to this in John chapter 17 when he talks about how he and the Father are one. They are one and the same. If you've seen him, you've seen the Father, right? The altar of incense is built out of two very important things, the structure and its glory. And our Savior, let's hope we never forget, is built out of two things. The side that looks just like you and me in the spiritual form that we, I long to see one day. That's what I can learn about Jesus from the, the, the construction, but I feel like we can learn even more from the function of Christ when it comes to the altar of incense, right? We can see that in Hebrews chapter 30, the function of the altar was, is even more important than its construction. The altar of burnt offering, remember the outside altar, it's a great illustration of the sacrifice of Christ, the culminating moment in the earthly ministry of Jesus. The altar of burnt offering to me symbolizes everything that Christ achieved, past tense. It was what was done. He was sacrificed. He laid out his life on the altar of the cross, right? And it's the culminating of his earthly ministry. And now the altar of incense, the culminating, it's what he is doing with us today. Present tense, active sense, right? This is what Christ's ministry is today in heaven. John chapter 14, verses 13 through 14. John chapter 14, 13 through 14. Jesus says, whatever you ask in my name, that, I, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. You see, I don't think this, this passage is teaching us, one, it's not a magical formula for prayer, right? It's not like if I say a prayer, and, and I say my prayer, and then I sprinkle on at the very end a dash of in the name of Jesus, that magically that allows everything I just asked for, for God to just say, well, he did say the name of Jesus, I'll give it to him now, right? If that had been the case, I would have gotten the bike I wanted when I was a 10, right? That's not what this saying is talking about in John chapter 14. It's not just, if you ask it in my name, you will get it, right? It's also not some magical vending machine. We don't get just to ask whatever we want to. If we say that at the bottom of it, it just grants any wish that we have. It's so much more than that, right? Christ is saying, if you are asking my Father for pleas of, of help or strength or courage for yourself or for others, for God's will to be done. That is what he will hear, and that is what he will answer. It's in his name. It's in his likelihood. It's in the image of Christ. If we were asking in, in the vein of the things that Christ would be asking for, we have a great that the end of his life as he is... Fallen down, praying to His Father. It's not my will, but Your will be done. If it's in that name that we are praying, that's when God hears and answers. Right, and we can do our best to humbly to to request those prayers as often as we can. But Christ gives us access to that. He's the one that opens that door, allows those prayers to be heard in the first place. You go to Ephesians chapter two and verse eighteen. And he, Christ, came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to you those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Later on in chapter 3, this was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confidence, access through faith in him. Christ opened the door, made it possible that when we did ask things in the name of Christ, all we can call on if we have a relationship with him he grants us access to the father it's like Christ opened the door to the throne room and said you know what I, I hear your prayers I, I, I know the thoughts of your heart because I've had those thoughts right I've walked that path make your request known to the throne room now at you're at your pleasing right ask in my name and he will hear Jesus opened the door he made those prayers rise up into heaven I feel like that's what the altar of incense does for the incense that's laid on it. It activated it. If Aaron came in there with the, the shallow basin, the basin and he's got the incense, he's lays on the floor, what's the incense going to do sitting on the floor? Nothing. It's going to be a pile of somewhat good-smelling stuff just sitting there, right? You lay it on top of the altar and it activates it. It spreads the aroma outward and, and causes the smoke to rise upward. My Savior is the altar that activated any thoughts I had of talking to my God. Without Him, they just lay flat on the floor. Without His Spirit interceding in incredible ways, they never make it to the throne room. The altar of incense allowed the incense to rise up. And my Savior, again, I'll be eternally grateful, allows my humble thoughts and desperate pleas to not stay here in this room. But for some reason, God has seen us worthy that our thoughts, our pleas, our adorations in the form of a prayer now can reach His throne. And that's thanks to Christ. That's thanks to the altar that He built for us. Both in its construction and its function, we can learn a lot about Jesus from the altar of incense. We also can learn a lot about prayer tonight, more so than we just talked about in that, se- in that situation, in that sense. Go down to uh, Exodus chapter 30, verses 34 through 38. The Lord said to Moses, take for yourself spices stacked. On- There's three. Listen, I don't know how to pronounce these three, I'll be honest. We can just say them in our minds together, right? Spices with pure frankincense. That shall be, that shall be an equal part of each. With it you shall make incense, a perfume, the work of a perfumer, salted, pure, and holy. And you shall beat some of it into a very fine, and put part of it before the testimony in the tent of the meeting, where I will meet with you, and it shall be most holy to you. The incense which you, which you shall make, you shall not make in the same proportions for yourselves. It shall be holy to you for the Lord. Whoever shall make it any like it to use as perfume shall be cut off for, from his people Leviticus. in, in, in responding to this, or, or kind of duplicating this passage, Seth will be put to death. Here we have this really interesting passage in the, in the bottom of Exodus chapter 30 when it comes to the actual incense itself, right? Now that we know the altar, what it looks like, its function, what we can learn about Jesus, now let's turn our attention to the incense itself. It's an amazing that God didn't say, okay, just pick one out, whatever smells good to you, right? If that, if that incense, he did not say, okay, Aaron, go to Bed Bath you know, right? And pick out a good smelling aroma and then put that on the top of the altar, right? He says, no, no, no. I want these four substances in this amount. I want it to be created in this certain way. We don't even know what the fourth one really is. We're not even sure what that substance is. But I think we can learn a few things about prayer from this. One, from its construction. Look at the different aspects. He didn't just pick one. He didn't just go to that first one and say, I'll take a a heaping pile of stacked," right? I want a lot of frankincense, maybe a little bit of myrrh, right? He didn't say I want one. He said I want a little bit of this, I want a little bit of that, maybe some of this over here, because you build these together and that's the aroma that I, that I desire. And, that, and what that brings to mind when it comes to our, our, our avenue of prayer is that our prayer should be a lot more than just a one-way street of one type of prayer, Right? our prayer should be so much more than just our morning Lord, this is what I need, this is what I need to get through my day. You get through the night and you go, okay, Lord, this is what I really desire um, to find peace so I can go to bed tonight, right? I think when I, when I was younger, I thought prayer was the time you went and asked God for stuff. That's where you sat down and said, okay, God, this is what I want, this is what I need. And, this, and what I realized, and thankfully because of Nana, what I quickly learned, this is not Santa's wish list, right? This is, that's not what prayer is. But there's room for that. There's a time for that. If you go over to Luke chapter 11, you'll see Jesus' model prayer to the apostles. And Luke, I love this passage because the, the apostles say, can you teach us how to pray? Can you show us exactly what it looks like, what it sounds like, and the components that I should have? And Jesus says, okay, when you pray, say this, Father, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, And we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not in to temptation. You can see in this a lot of different components. You can go online, you can find a, ta- a lot of different components in this passage. We can, look, we can break this down in, in the five P's of prayer, right? This is the classic, you know, Church of Christ Sunday morning sermon, the five P's of prayer, right? You can look at the, pray, the, pray, the praise aspect, starting out in verse... Um, Looking at Father Hallowed be your name, right? The purpose, the provision, the penitence, and the protection. But you could go online, you could look at a different order or formula of prayer. You could find synonyms to these words. I was scrolling because this wasn't my main point. I was just scrolling looking at, okay, what are the different components of prayer that people think of, right? One of them said the 23 components of prayer in Luke chapter 11. I thought, I don't know if there's even 23 words in Luke chapter 11 in this prayer. But we all get the idea, right? That prayer is built of a mixture of praise, of adoration, of repentance, of pleas for help and protection. And they're all just as important. It's not just one. And it'd be good for me, it'd be good for all of us to remember that there's room and time for every bit of it. That's what we can learn about the construction, but the function of this incense is how often it was used, right? And we know we had to talk about this at some point. Aaron comes in, the high priest comes in twice a day, making sure that that fire's going, making sure it's going to be good for a while. It's set up for the rest of the day, set up for the rest of the night, puts on enough incense that it's going to be slowly radiating outward, ascending upward at all times. I wonder if we model our prayer life just after those two aspects, how much would change about it. If we set up prayer in the morning that would carry us throughout the rest of the day. Not just prayer before you leave for work, not one prayer over your bowl of cereal, but a prayer that sets you up to talk to Him throughout the rest of the day. And I wonder if we could set up our evenings, maybe our nightly routine now is built around this, this nightly prayer that we have that sets us up for tomorrow. That builds in the four components or the 17 components of prayer. Of praise and adoration and and penitence or repentance and protection and please but we build our prayers so that we're continuously talking to God throughout the day we're not trying to get it all out in the morning and not trying to remember all the things at night but that we're adding those components bit by bit by bit in the morning throughout the afternoon when we're walking in between classes at school when you go and take a break at work when you're when you're walking from the living room to the to the refrigerator, the refrigerator, right? When you're driving in your car, I remember I was so grateful. Someone talked to me about this. When I first got my car, I, I was excited. When I turned 16, I got a, a bit of a hoopty, but it was a, it was a car, right? So I had this car, and I remember one of these mentors, I had, spiritual mentors I had, he said, "Okay, it's great you have a car. It's awesome. I don't have to pick you up for to for worship anymore." So one of the best things about when I got my license was I realized it's the best time to pray. Because he had a bit of a commute, and he said, it's just perfect time to turn the radio off and just tune in, right? I had the best prayer life ever my first six months of driving because I've realized, man, I have so much time, I can pray to God now. We've got to start some habits. We've got we got to start sprinkling these, these prayers in as a continuous aroma to God. And I think that's what David meant in Psalm 141 verse 2 when he says, May my prayer be counted as an incense before you. The altar of incense is a structure that we can learn a lot from. It's a structure that we can leave in the, text, in the Bible as a textbook. And we can say that was, an, and that was a really cool piece that had a really neat function a long time ago. Or we can look tonight and we can hopefully see that it has a lot more purpose and a lot more value and what it can do and what it can mean to our life today. Hopefully that tonight, just like when I was 20, 21 years old looking at that uh, the 9-11 memorial, I felt the weight of it. And, and I felt some of the courage that the men and women had to have to stand up that day. And I saw some of the despair that some of the, the families went through as they looked for loved ones. And I sat in it, thought about it, and, I come to, and, I, and, I, and it kind of took, took me a while. I hope that tonight, that as we look at the altar of incense, it, it's made you stop. And not just read it like a textbook and say, "Okay, there's that piece of furniture. Moving to the next one, right? can't wait to get to the bread." but that you sat and said, "What is this? What can I learn from this? What did Christ do in his life that, re- that re- is represented in the tabernacle tonight? The altar of incense always had to be burning. In the simple question tonight, is your altar of incense burning in your life? Is your prayer life a, a, a staple in your life? Is it a pillar holding up a part of your faith? Or is it, a, is it like the, the squeaky wheel at a Walmart buggy? Barely hanging on. But it, altar of incense can be more than prayer too. What it is is a constant worship to God. Never stopping. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2 said that's what our life should be, right? Constant sacrifice. So, yes, prayer, but more so our whole life. Are we constantly sending worship up to Him in our thoughts? Or are we constantly sending praise up to Him in our thoughts and our actions and our mindsets and our attitudes about everybody in this room and everybody outside of this room? There's a lot to be learned from the altar of incense. There's a lot more to be learned from Christ Himself. And that all starts with having a relationship with Him tonight. And If you don't have one, you'd like to learn more about Him and what you can take away from Him, Himself. Let's have that study. Let's ask those questions. Or maybe you've already put on Christ in baptism and you have that relationship. That door has been opened up and you can lift those prayers to the throne room of God. But you need some more aroma to help out, right? You need some more prayers of your brothers and sisters kind of wafting upwards with yours. And you need some help you need some forgiveness. You just need some encouragement. If you've got any need tonight, just come forward as we stand and sing.
1: Give me a clean heart, oh.
0: Sunday to partake of the Lord's Supper. And we want to make sure that you have that opportunity here tonight. So if if you have not yet partaken of the Lord's Supper today, uh, we invite you at this time during this song, uh, I Gave My Life for Thee, to uh, exit out the doors and you'll be shown where you can partake of communion. I gave my life for Thee,
1: my precious blood, Thank
0: worship with you today a reminder if you haven't yet uh, put in attendance to do that before you leave here today my
1: precious savior, 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 savior.
0: close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, it's uh, been a privilege today to come together with our fellow Christians to worship you, to study your word, to sing praises to you. We're uh, grateful for this opportunity that we've had. Uh, As we go into this week, we ask for you to help us to be a good example of Christ to the world, and we ask you to help us stay from sin. It's in your son's name we pray.